0: And now, here's your host, Sean Rost.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the R Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost and i with you guys we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Water. Did you ever stop to think just how important water is to your everyday life? From health, sanitation, and nutrition to transportation, recreation, and cultural identity. Water is just as important today as it has been for countless people for generations. Whether it's the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, or the endless list of rivers, creeks, ponds, lakes, and even fountains that dot Missouri's landscape, this series is all about water. So with that, let's dive right in to water and waterways. Our guest today is Alex Prim. He is a freelance oral historian who has spent over 40 years alongside the rivers, gravel bars, forests, and people of the Missouri Ozarks. His new book, Ozark Voices, Oral Histories from the Heartland, was published by McFarlane Books in 2022. Welcome to R Missouri, Alex.
0: Thank you, Sean. Good to be here.
1: Now, to begin with, uh, as we look at this new book that just came out, let's get to the origins here. Where does this interest for you in oral history originate? Where does it come from? It came from my
0: work as a journalist. I was in the Army, and I uh, worked as an editor, and a journalist in Vietnam and I continued that work after graduate school. I worked in the newspaper in Ralla and the more I interviewed people of doing human interest stories, the more I realized that often I would be the only person who would record stories from an older person and It gave me a sense of responsibility and I enjoyed talking to the older people. And uh, I had a chance to change careers. I worked for a regional planning commission in Rolla in the 1980s and my boss there, Richard Cavender, uh, supported my uh, desire to do oral history that I had learned in journalism. So we applied for a grant from the Missouri Humanities Council and um, also got support from the James Foundation in New York that runs Merrimack Spring Park. He was involved there uh, on the board. And um, so it was working for a government agency that got me doing uh, government-funded oral history. That's where it began.
1: Now, as we think about not only your involvement with that, but also this book, Ozark Voices, talk about the decision to take, you know, 40 years of oral history and, of course, the journalism career and turn that into a book that we see now.
0: I uh, was an English major in college and I was always interested in literature, but I realized as a young man that I didn't have uh, the creative uh, potential, the drive, the vision to be a creative writer. Uh, I have friends who do a variety of different kinds of writing, but I never saw myself as a creative writer. Uh, My wife, however, said, you enjoy doing this oral history so much Maybe you should turn it into a book. You're constantly uh, interviewing people, taking notes on the interviews I've had. You should get this material together. And I agreed after having done a a number of projects over the years that it was something that, that I could do and in some ways I should do. There's people I've interviewed I really respect and found fascinating, and I decided to try to bring a manuscript together, and it was really a long project because I didn't want just a collection of articles or uh, stories. I wanted a collection that would somehow have uh, a dramatic arc to it as Uh, playwrights describe uh, how a theater piece has to come together. There has to be beginning, middle, and end, and that's what I tried to do in this book is to show how one person can develop a career in a new field. Oral history was just beginning as I entered the field in the 1980s, and I... uh, so structured the book to be uh, a collection that highlights uh, a passage in uh, a really complex field, but one that, that's really quite simple. Telling stories is, is the basic element of, of oral history. And good storytellers are a few and far between. I'm not a good storyteller myself, but I appreciate good storytellers and try to highlight them in my book.
1: I agree. Good sto- storytellers are hard to find, but when you find them, <laughs> you're in for a treat. Thinking about this Ozarks region, you know, the, the book is titled Ozark Voices. How do you, as someone who has lived in the Ozarks, define this area, both geographically but also culturally? You know, who are Ozarkers? Who are the people that are living in that region?
0: Uh, it, that's a big question. Uh, the, the region can be defined as going roughly from St. Louis and Columbia, south of Sedalia, to Little Rock and Russellville, Arkansas. It is uh, goes to the Mississippi River and over into the corner of Kansas and a bigger corner of Oklahoma. It's, it's a large area. Uh, I think about 100, uh, actually, I forget how many square miles, but it's as big as modern Greece. I've figured it up. And culturally, there are a lot of different kinds of people who live in the Ozarks. I think Ozarkers define themselves as something they feel within their uh, within their spirit, to recognize the importance of, of place and the activities that are uh, supported by living in the Ozarks. I think the the hills, the uh, challenge to Garden and farm, uh, to have cattle. Uh, any kind of agriculture is, is a challenge in this region, but there's people who do well with it. Uh, I think recent uh, arrivals to the Ozarks can be just as Ozarky as people who have, have uh, many generations of roots in the Ozarks. I grew up in St. Louis. But I, I walked to school and I remember walking along a creek and finding possums uh, under, the, under the root wads along the little creek in St. Louis County. Uh, so I think the, the Ozarks is, is a vast area, both culturally and geographically.
1: Now let's dive into, into some of the key themes and key, key sections that emerge Within your book, and I'm especially interested in starting off with uh, talking about kind of the Ozark Rivers and and the project behind that. Where did that start and who were some of the people that you talked to?
0: The grant to, to do that work came from the Merrimack Regional Planning Commission. I worked on it for a couple of years altogether. And the idea was to do interviews in each of the six counties that were then part of the regional planning district and to get stories of how people used the rivers, why the rivers were important to people. And probably the most famous person I interviewed was Ralph Treehouse Brown. He was one of the first people to rent canoes in the Ozarks. He lived in a, what he called a treehouse shack along the Hoosaw Creek, east of Steelville, Missouri. He um, had a daughter who worked with him in the business, but he was really a one-man band uh, in beginning with just two canoes and his brother, and gradually they got a dozen canoes and a partner in St. Louis who helped bankroll them, and he uh, spent his whole life into his late 60s renting canoes every weekend anytime anyone in a canoe that come to Scotia Bridge on the Hoosaw Creek. And he uh, was such a enthusiastic storyteller. I worked with a musician from Rolla named Tom Shipley, part of the folk duo Brewer and Shipley. And we made a video uh, about Ralph called Treehouse, an Ozark story that you can still find on YouTube that was funded in part by the State Arts Council. It's a half an hour. It was really meant for school kids to show how important schools, how important rivers are to people. Uh, I remember I was really impressed with a man from Gasconade County named George uh, Langenberg, who uh, farmed on uh, Red Oak Creek uh, near Owensville, Missouri, and Mr. Langenberg studied the creek, and he, he knew what kind of damage the floods could do to his farmland, and he was very careful to, to, to manage the, the timber growing along the river so it would allow the floods to, to continue downstream and not take away his topsoil I think that's a very important interview. It shows how people need to respect and understand the river. Sometimes people have put old car bodies in the river to try to protect uh, from erosion, taking away some of their ground. And that's not really a good thing to do apparently in in most cases, it's better to to find uh, uh, natural ways to keep the channel, the running down river as you want the, the water to move. So that's an important interview. It's six or seven pages in the book. I also interviewed a uh, uh, wonderful guy from St. James named River Charlie Smallwood who really valued his land too. He, uh, he and his wife, Made uh, sycamore syrup every year. They tapped their sycamore trees on the along the bottom along the Merrimack River, and I'd never heard of that before. But the sycamore is in the maple family, so it's just like uh, maple tree maple syrup. Uh, There were many others I interviewed, and some of them are in uh, in this book Ozark Voices.
1: Now, you also did work, uh, as you've mentioned, with the U.S. Forest Service and, of course, the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, to name a few. Talk about some of the the world histories and projects you were working on with those groups.
0: Uh, The Forest Service was the the first group I worked with after uh, leaving uh, the James Foundation, where I was a curator of the Ozark Agriculture Museum in Merrimack Spring Park. Uh, I did a Uh, one summer of interviews uh, for an area in uh, western Washington County called uh, Palmer. It's a town uh, near a series of lakes uh, that were created by the TIF mining industry and the lead miners beginning really in the 18th century. The French were out there mining lead and the next century uh, Uh, The Anglos got into uh, digging tiff, uh, which is a barite, a mineral that's used in the uh, drilling industry and it was an additive for paint. Palmer was a really interesting community that uh, had one of the last uh, big cuts of pine timber during the Depression. It uh, also was famous as a, uh, having some civil war involvement, Henry Rose Schoolcraft walked through the area. It's, it's a really uh, beautiful part of, of the Ozarks. And um, uh, I just documented as much of the history of, of Palmer as I could by talking to people Uh, It it was a really great opportunity. It's a long essay also in there, seven or eight pages. Uh, Another place where I got to do some interviews is south of uh, Potosi uh, near off Highway 21 is a uh, Missouri natural area called Grasshopper Hollow. It's owned by uh, St. Joe uh, Minerals. And the Forest Service and the Nature Conservancy, and it is uh, a small hollow, maybe just a uh, hundred or more acres, that has a um, has an unusual uh, geologic feature called a fen, which is a body of water that's quite swampy, but it is. Uh, uh, the geological layers keeps the keep the area wet. It's not really a swamp. It has unique plants in in the fen, and it was uh, a favorite place for people to live in the 20s and 30s because they could have a big garden uh, along the the sides of Grasshopper Hollow and now there's no one living in the hollow, but I talked to people who, who lived there and farmed and were involved in the timber industry. There was a railroad going up to Bunker, Missouri, and that's been pulled out long ago. And the uh, the, the fen has got some great stories and now it's a place you can visit and, enjoy a a variety of plants. Uh, I don't know if it's open to hunting anymore. I assume it is, but uh, it's not the greatest place to hunt probably. It's a little bit uh, mucky down there in the swamp, in the fend, but it's it's a great place to visit. I also did some interviews uh, along the Big Piney River. Uh, There were resorts. Uh, During the Depression, it was an area that was very popular for people from all over uh, the state to come and uh, float and fish. Uh, There was a big uh, resort outside Waynesville that was popular. And all those resorts are gone now. And the Forest Service wanted me to document some of the resorts along the, mainly along the Big Piney, but also did some interviews about the Gasconade River, and the resorts there. So those are some of the main things I did. Uh, the The book, uh, Ozark Voices, has a list in the back of the different projects I worked on. So uh, I can't remember them all now, but. That's one reason I wanted to do this book, is to, to record some of the projects and some of the the findings and some of the really important stories that I think people will enjoy reading.
1: Now, obviously, one part of the state that had a significant transformation upon the landscape is Fort Leonard. Well, talk about your involvement with the project in relation to Fort Leonard Wood and its effect on the Ozarks?
0: Fort Leonard Wood is a really unique place. It's uh, almost 70,000 acres. It was created uh, just at the, before World War II began, as a interior training post for the Army. It was built in less than a year's time. And Uh, When the government uh, does construction, they uh, require that an archeologist uh, assure that uh, prehistoric uh, resources of early settlement by Native people or pioneers uh, aren't damaged. Fort Leonard Wood in the 1990s became a larger trading base It now is involved in MP and law enforcement training, chemical warfare training, and uh, as well as uh, army basic training. So it has expanded quite a bit as other uh, military bases have been reduced. Uh, They had to develop a, a history of Fort Leonard Wood as part of this expansion they hired a historian named Steve Smith from South Carolina to do a complete history of that part of Texas County where Fort Leonard Wood is, Texas County and Pulaski County. So um, I worked with Steve uh, and gathering oral history uh, about the communities that were lost when Fort Leonard Wood was developed in 1941 I probably did uh, 30 interviews with people around Fort Leonard Wood. Fort Leonard Wood is really unique in that there are a lot of people who still have strong connections to the fort. There are several graveyards the army has maintained. They've restored an old one-room school uh, that was on the banks of the Big Piney River going through Fort Leonard Wood. So I'd have to give the Army high marks for uh, uh, preserving uh, some of the uh, remains of the people, the civilization, the communities that existed uh, in the land that they have taken over. They still have reunions of people who get together from, remember the towns of There was a town called Palace. There's another town called Bloodland. Cookville was a town, I forget the other towns, but these people still have family roots uh, in Fort Leonard Wood. And Steve did a wonderful job in his book called uh, Made in the Timber. Uh, It was published by the army itself and copies are still out there of his of his book, and I have a section at the end of the book on oral history at Fort Leonard Wood. I I really enjoyed uh, working there. You know, I had sort of mixed feelings about being in the army. I was drafted and went to Vietnam. I had a lot of questions about that war, but as I've gotten older, I know these things are foreign policy is is very complex, and, I've learned to keep my opinions to myself. And I was drafted, but the Army in some ways was a good experience. I met a lot of people who uh, were uh, very dedicated to serving our country. You know, in some ways I think it would be good if we had the draft again. There's not many institutions where young men, young people rub shoulders with others from all over the country. And Fort Leonard Wood is is, is really a meeting place in the Ozarks for uh, uh, a lot of, of new development. There's a lot of economic development now that is associated with Fort Leonard Wood. You know, I don't know if everyone appreciates that, but I think it it is vital for people in central Missouri to take advantage of the economic opportunities that uh, have been developed at Fort Leonard Wood. It's a a very complex place, and there's several museums where people can visit. It's more than just a a basic training place that was known as Fort Lost in the Woods. It's really no longer Lost in the Woods. It's an amazing place. And I was glad to have a chance to work there.
1: Obviously over the course of a 40 year career there in, in oral histories, uh, you have a lot of freelance opportunities, a lot of individuals you've, you've met along the way. Uh, talk a bit about some of the freelance oral histories that you, that you feature in the book as well.
0: You know, one man that comes to mind is the musician Bob Holt, who uh, lived outside of Springfield, he played with another musician named Art Galbraith. And I got to interview them both uh, for the State Arts Council. Uh, I was uh, an evaluator of, for a program the State Arts Council still operates called the Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program. And uh, Bob Holt had a, a young woman who Uh, was learning uh, guitar and uh, Square Dance uh, Calling, I believe it was. She was just very enthusiastic. I interviewed them at a a country store that's still going uh, for Monday night uh, dance parties at McClure, Missouri, and I interviewed uh, Art Galbraith at his home in Springfield, He was just a wonderful fiddle player. And the State Arts Council has really done a real service by uh, supporting traditional arts, whether it's fiddle players or duck call makers or traditional weavers. There's uh, so many different things uh, they have supported. And when someone evaluates these partnerships, they're doing really a mini oral history. And that's what I tried to do when I worked for the Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program. There's just uh, so many other people I can think of. Had a chance to interview, I'll mention uh, Jenny Webb Scudder. She has passed away, but luckily I captured the story of her family. They were in Willow Springs, Missouri. And uh, she really, she and her husband worked for a church, uh, but before she married uh, David, uh, she worked for a uh, congressman. He was a, a wonderful person who has, has done a lot of things for Willow Springs. And uh, Ginny Webb Scudder is the kind of person who, who really impressed me with her uh, ability to, to relate to people and to, to serve her community through her church and and through her family. She was a very welcoming person. And I still remember her as a special person. She had worked for uh, Representative Wendell Bailey. You know, she's the kind of person that maybe will never figure into a a written history of of the Ozarks or our state. But she is the kind of person that I, I really valued and I really tried to find people who were making a contribution that that may not be recognized in other ways. I always look for people trying to do something positive and Jenny Webb Scudder was, was really a special person.
1: And we've talked a lot about the Ozarks and uh, about your substantial career with oral history. To close for today, Let's talk about an oral history experience, you know, with this being a series on water and waterways along one of those Ozark waterways, something that you'll never forget.
0: Yeah, I think uh, probably the most fascinating person I interviewed was a retired a school teacher who lived outside of Plato, Missouri. Uh, her name was Aline Hatch. She was in her 80s when I interviewed her. And she was still very uh, vigorous. She lived along the upper Ruby Dew Creek and she had great feelings for that, that stream. The book tells a little bit more of the trouble she got into, but it tells more of her enthusiasm for her, her family and her children. Uh, she was pictured on the cover of the Missouri Conservationist Magazine. Uh, While she was in her 80s, she pictured on the cover uh, sitting uh, in full camo with an arrow notched on her bow. She was a deer hunter. She also loved to fish. And uh, she always went to the trout opening day of trout season at uh, Montauk uh, on the upper Current River. the story she tells is about her grandfather.
2: My grandfather was a professional hunter. And by that, I mean that um, he had dogs and horses and guns and he would go to a farmer's house and the farm would keep him, feed his dogs and him and his horses and till he killed their winter's meat. Killed and, and uh, cured. Uh-huh. They salted it. Jeez, right. Killed and cured their winter's meat.
1: This was your grandfather?
2: This is my grandfather. And what was his name? Uh, it's in there, James Meadows. It's okay. in that book. Okay. His name is, and his picture's in there, too. Oh, okay. You'll see it. Yeah. And um, and so, <clears throat> he, um, then he, whenever they had all they wanted, then he'd go to the next farm, uh-huh. and, and he would... Uh, uh, kill and cure their meat for the mm-hmm. winter. I think he started in about October and run all through the winter. And what he got out of it was his room and his board and the furs
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, the skins and the furs. And come spring, why he uh, took, he, 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 by spring he would have a wagon load of furs and skins and he would go to take them to St. Louis and sell them. That would be his money mm-hmm. for that year. Mm -hmm. and evidently they were a pretty good price Mm -hmm. the furs were so anyhow she told me about this particular year I mean he told me Desi's father told me about this particular year my dad my grandfather I mean uh, had come to their house and then went on to all the other houses and had got their winter's meat then it came spring and it was time for him to go to St. Louis sell his furs so he started to St. Louis with his wagon-load of furs all piled up, you know, and skins. And so on his way, he uh, just about to Rolla the first day, and he uh, camped that night, and he slept under his wagon, and he built a farm. and evidently we got too much fire, too close to the hides and the you know, uh, know I don't know what you know about skins, but they're very, uh, they'll burn quick. A lot, a lot of uh, suet on them, you know, dried suet, that's like yeah. grease. Uh-huh. And so the wagon and the furs caught on fire and burned up. <laughs> well, that burned up my grandfather's, all his, all his property. Yeah. And he didn't have anything else. That's all he had was that wagon and his horses and his dogs and his guns and, and the furs. And so that put him out of business. Oh, and so he, uh, after that, Mr. McWilliams said uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, go back into the business anymore. He decided that he was too old for that. And so he went to California and stayed with my aunts. That was his daughters yeah. out there. And lived out there until he died.
1: Oh, did he start a movie studio out there? <laughs> no, no. Just hung out on the beach.
2: Just hung out on the beach, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, boy, how many years do you reckon he did this hunting for people?
2: Oh, uh, years and years. Uh-huh. Ever since he came down from North Missouri, uh-huh. while he uh, did that, okay. that was his way of making a living. Uh-huh. That was was. That was how he made it. What happened
1: to his wife?
2: Uh, she died when my dad was born. They oh. lived in the South. Uh-huh. I, I think I told you. Yeah. And My dad then was raised on the plantation.
0: That's the uh, a story that I find uh, really unforgettable. It creates uh, what we could call a flashlight uh, memory. Can't you sort of sense uh, the panic of Mr. Meadows when he saw his uh, whole livelihood burn up on a late spring night in the Ozarks? It must have been a a terrible thing to have uh, such a loss occur. But luckily, he had a family, he had friends, and he was able to to resettle and uh, move on with his life. But there are not many people who have these kind of stories in their family, perhaps. That's why I think it's worth preserving this story. There's a, another person who also inspired me in oral history named Lennis Leonard Broadfoot who collected stories like this around the Ozarks. He wrote a book in the early 1940s called Pioneers of the Ozarks. And he captured stories of people who were market hunters, sort of like Mr. Meadows was a market hunter, but he wasn't selling the meat. He was just providing the the animals for farmers to get through the winter with. So I think that's a wonderful story. People might look for Mr. Broadfoot's stories, too. He was the early master of oral history in the Ozarks.
1: Thank you very much for the conversation, Alex. And uh, we hope that listeners will go ahead and seek out Ozark Voices uh, on bookshelves uh, across the country and, of course, at the Center for Missouri Studies. So uh, thank you very much again.
0: Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. I hope people get a chance to do some oral history with their families and friends. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our-missouri.